Hey everyone, and uh, welcome back to uh, Feral Points Podcast. Uh, my name is Adir Levitas, and I'm a co-founder and CEO of uh, Feral Point, uh, which is an industrial uh, uh, real estate group. Today we have a special guest, uh, Keith Bilski, who is the founder and CEO and uh, president of Finial Group. Uh, Keith has more than 15 years of experience in brokerage development and investment real estate with expertise in site acquisition, capital structuring, project management. Uh, today they manage over 500 million uh, worth of assets. So Keith, thanks for joining us. Adir, thanks for having us. Appreciate being So we know for many years and uh, I thought that would be a cool uh, conversation to talk about uh, amid COVID-19, what's happening uh, in Texas in terms of economy, real estate, uh, and real estate trends. Uh, so my, why don't you start us off, uh, how do you feel the Texas economy uh, is doing uh, these days? Well, it's certainly been a bizarre six months. Uh, you know, COVID has provoked, I think, some kind of bizarre and unprecedented times. Uh, but generally speaking, I would say that uh, I believe Texas is handling the pandemic very well. Uh, Texas people um, tend to have a kind of extremely determined mindset and strong work ethic. And I think most people genuinely wanted to get back to work and back to business as quickly as possible. And uh, there was political pressure, um, you know, to uh, open things back up and get people back to work. And so really, effective May 1st, um, Governor Abbott issued an order allowing all businesses other than uh, just basically bars and, and large gatherings of over 100 um, were the only that were excluded, and everyone else was allowed to open back up. So. Uh, you know, most local businesses opened back up immediately. And then, uh, you know, among your Fortune 100 and Fortune 500 companies, we're seeing the Texas offices are the first ones that they're opening back up. While they've been a little um, maybe slower than the local companies, uh, that most of them are opening up Texas far before most other major markets. Mm-hmm. But it, it seems that uh, um, within the Texas major metro areas, which is Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, Austin, uh, COVID effect was different. Um, can you elaborate more on how you see that uh, those differences, uh, if it's just you know oil and gas or general economy, and uh, where do you think it has uh, the uh, uh, the biggest effect? Yeah, I think you know it's been interesting, and COVID has had an impact um, in, in some ways maybe more negative on Texas, and in some ways. Um, not as, as negative because we've actually had a positive beneficiary of some things. So, um, just, you know, as an example, yes, we did have the, um, you know, the brief period of extreme oil volatility where oil, you know, temporarily traded at negative prices and provoked a massive amount of fear in the oil and gas markets. Uh, you know, that has, uh, continued to create a lasting effect of just hesitancy. Most major capital and many lenders, um, you know, as they're looking at credit risk as it relates to the oil and gas industry. So there, there certainly is, um, you know, a microscope on Texas right now and oil and gas in general. But, you know, oil did return to a, a stabilized level pretty quickly and has been there since then. And I think most of the local businesses still feel pretty good about their, their pipeline. Um, but, you know, without a doubt, there were some highly leveraged oil and gas companies that probably weren't financially sound coming into the pandemic and the volatility and delay in collections and issues associated with that 
um, may provoke some some bankruptcies from companies within those industries. But I, I believe, for the most part, the companies that will will go down that path um, were not financially sound pre-COVID, and COVID may be only exposed to the weakness of them. And uh, you know, and, and in some ways, it's actually good for the oil and gas market long term because when you flush out some of the high leveraged um, competition that that really isn't operating and sound practices, it, it helps those that are strong financially, um, you know, as, as it sort of pairs down the market and ultimately oil and gas pricing will get back to a stronger level with less production. So I, I think it can be positive in some ways with that regard, but one way Texas has really benefited is I think, you know, with the, uh, the eyes of the world on us as we were one of the first geographic areas in the world really to reopen the extent that we did, I think a lot of businesses um, see Texas as a, a very business-friendly environment because of the way we operated that. And I think a great example of that is Tesla's announcement to open up their headquarters, or not headquarters, but their next uh, manufacturing facility in Austin, Texas, uh, rather than California. And, you know, I think Texas has a great business environment here where politically very pro-business and uh, you've got a good, you know, cost of labor is reasonable, cost of living is reasonable, uh, and real estate is really reasonable relative to the prices in most major metropolitan cities around. Yeah, I, I can uh, I can relate to that. You know, look, looking at from a macro standpoint, at the two two huge metro areas of Houston, uh, Dallas and uh, uh, of, of Texas, Dallas and Houston, uh, Dallas has surpassed Houston in GDP. Uh, just recently, I remember a few years ago, Houston was number one, and uh, Dallas has just came in uh, better than Houston. Uh, as Houston's GDP was a little bit hurt uh, in 2014, uh, when the oil was really into a downturn. Uh, so I was interested. How do you see why is Dallas so strong? What makes Dallas such a growing metro area, uh, and how do you see its economy in terms of diversification? Uh, in contrast to Houston? Well, yeah, Dallas has experienced a great amount of growth in the last decade, and it's all for good reason. Uh, you know, Dallas is really well located. Uh, you know, if you look at it, it's being sort of in the north-central portion of Texas, so it makes it very easily accessible um, from the east and the west coast and from the midwest. And so, you know, whereas Houston is another five hours further south, um, it's maybe not as ideal from a transportation standpoint. Uh, and Dallas has a tremendous amount of infrastructure with rail intermodals and other things that just make its connectivity to the rest of the country really great. Uh, Dallas has a, you know, a great local culture. Um, and it's just been an area that has really attracted many companies from outside of Texas. Um, Houston has the image of being more energy related. And so while all major energy companies have a presence here in Houston, I think often if you're a tech company or a pharmaceutical company, you might think about Dallas as a, as a better choice than Houston just because uh, it has a reputation for being more diversified in an in industry and not as energy focused as Houston is. Mm -hmm. But would you say uh, the same um, from your standpoint, meaning uh, Dallas is the obvious uh, winner uh, when it comes to uh, uh, the growth in the economy and the growth in uh, uh, distribution centers and uh, and all of that, uh, but Houston is in 
it's kind of a in a in a dormant in terms of energy. When things are good, people say, uh, "Oh, Houston is the energy capital of the world," and when things are bad, they say, uh, "Houston is too energy dependent." It becomes a liability. Uh, but you see an opportunity just because of that to enter Houston's uh, uh, light industrial light manufacturing distribution market today. I, I do. I mean, the interesting thing about the en energy market is, you know, Houston has been through many cycles over time, and what we see is when times are good. All major firms globally allocate massive amounts of capital to Houston, and then pricing gets driven up. But when times are rocky in the oil and gas industry, that capital is immediately turned off, and it's no longer vote to uh, present to investment committee that you want to buy a bunch of real estate in Houston. And those are the times when we see people make the most money. Um, you know, when they're able to buy things with less buy side pressure, when it isn't as competitive, and ultimately, you know, we believe. The oil and gas industry is going to be around for a long time, and we believe that local manufacturing is, is even more important now than ever. So there continues to be a need by local companies for these these local warehouses and manufacturing facilities. And you know, I think that as the buy side pressure goes away, I think there's just an opportunity for greater risk adjusted yields to investors in Houston. Mm -hmm. You see the uh, onshoring trend uh, with that respect uh, helping. Uh, Houston uh, show opportunities, um, you know, new companies uh, onshoring uh, to Houston, and maybe workforce that was laid off during the pandemic uh, is already skilled manufacturer workforce that could be applied uh, to the uh, new companies that would onshore. Do you see some of that action? Absolutely. Yeah, we've already started to see a lot of those requirements in the last couple of months, and I think that trend will continue. I think that. Uh, you know, through the pandemic, I think um, all of the supply chain issues that were created um, by, you know, companies that were highly exposed to um, manufacturing in China or, um, you know, far away from the U.S. really recognized that can create a, a supply chain disruption when they're dependent upon components um, that they don't have control over. And we have seen a lot of uh, manufacturers vertically integrate and bring manufacturing back um, to the U.S. and Houston is really well positioned to absorb a lot of those requirements because, as you said, we have a highly qualified workforce um, that you know coming out of oil and gas um, you know is is available right now uh, in so, to some extent just because there has been some downsizing within the oil and gas industry and um, we have a lot of available warehouse although I wouldn't say vacancy is high. We have the buildings that have been built here are extremely well suited for manufacturing and have a tremendous amount of infrastructure with heavy power, compressed air, uh, in some cases overhead cranes, outside storage yard, um, and things that are just ideal for manufacturing. So rather than having to wait a 15-month design build, um, we have good inventory on the market and we can accommodate requirements day one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I get that, and I think the port of Houston is uh, also uh, has a big role uh, in increasing Houston attractiveness uh, in terms of you know outside uh, shipping, inbound, outbound, uh, and stuff like that. Uh, but if, if we're trying to shift a little bit to the distribution market and staying in Houston, um, some of the um, you know national reports show lately that Houston has an increased amount of deliveries. 
which is far more than what is its ability to absorb according to historical absorptions. Uh, you, I mean, how, what's your take on that? Isn't that oversupply uh, trend, or do you see the market taking that up? Well, I think, you know, it, it, it depends upon the size of distribution that you're talking about. Um, there has been an unprecedented amount of uh, construction by your large REITs building extremely large cross-stock bulk distribution buildings. Most of these buildings are targeting users that are over 100,000 square feet, many as many as you know half a million to a million square feet and historically Houston hasn't had a lot of those requirements while we've gotten our share of Amazon deals and others like that that have absorbed large space we don't have as deep of a demand for large bay distribution as Dallas and some other markets do um, primarily because I think you know areas like Dallas have become more regional distribution whereas a lot of what we see in Houston is more local distribution. So I, I think there is going to be some excess supply in the extremely large bulk distribution space, uh, but where we actually see limited supply and in some cases constraints and, and rents being driven up um, significantly is in smaller distribution space. Um, most of the major REITs are not building that product anymore and they are only building the large bulk because that's what has been kind of popular, you know, in um, investment committee for the last couple of years, and you know, the, that sort of leaves the smaller distribution space with the older existing buildings, and demand continues to grow, supply has stayed flat, and that has created a constraint. So you're thinking the industry locations of distribution centers that cannot be duplicated in today's cost of construction is where you think the opportunity is at if you're looking to uh, constrain uh, product in a growing distribution market. Absolutely, absolutely. Because if you contrast that to where the new development is mostly occurring, the new development necessity is occurring so far outside of the major metropolitan area that it really doesn't work for last distribution space. So even if those developers were to pivot and say they would build smaller distribution space, they're going so far out just because of necessity for land availability that the space really wouldn't be functional for last mile distribution. Whereas this product um, that is well located within the city is where we've seen the most upward pressure on rents and we believe there's the most opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, but thinking about Houston infill locations for distribution manufacturing, some of those buildings that should be or can be distribution are actually built for manufacturing, meaning they have less dock doors, they have more drive-in doors, uh, maybe they're built a little bit differently with too many too many specs and amenities for just a, a 3PL in and out kind of operation. Uh, so do you think you would target a conversion of existing manufacturing building to distribution, or do you think that doesn't have a business uh, sense in going that route to find opportunities in the Houston market? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and we talk about it a lot around here. And it's really case by case specific. Uh, it's hard to generalize because each of these manufacturing buildings is so unique. And as you said, some of them have attributes that just don't make them conducive for distribution. Where if you know if it doesn't have enough dock doors, that can perhaps be remedied. But if it has uh, an extremely low clear height, then that's much more difficult and expensive to remedy. So 
it really is case by case and difficult to generalize. Uh, but yes, there are instances where I think buildings can be converted from manufacturing to distribution space. Um, one of the innate challenges to doing that, historically, rents in manufacturing buildings have actually been much greater in distribution space. And so it, in some cases, it's almost going uh, the wrong direction to convert from manufacturing to distribution because there is has been such good manufacturing demand that in a lot of cases, you're able to lease it for a superior rent uh, for a manufacturing purpose. Um, but if a building were for some reason not absorbed for manufacturing use over a period of time, I think for the through creative architecture, there are ways to convert the building for distribution. Mm -hmm. So that, that wouldn't be your first choice. Uh, and uh, you would wait till the manufacturing market uh, come back in life or come stronger back, uh, at least at the pace it was pre-COVID levels, before you would do that such conversion. That's absolutely right. I mean, these manufacturing buildings are, are really special. I mean, they have so much capital has been invested in the infrastructure uh, in the heavy power and the cranes and the compressed air. And those items are so expensive to recreate that, um, you know, and, and there are a lot of uses that have an absolute necessity for those things. And so if a user is looking at having to build new in a design build versus being able to go and lease in an existing building that has that infrastructure, it just, it, it makes absolute sense for them to, to go to the existing structure. Most of these businesses don't care so much about, um, you know, maybe the, the looks or the aesthetics of the building itself. Uh, it's all about functionality. It's all about okay. can the building achieve whatever they need it to do for their business. And so many of these older buildings have great infrastructure that can really be leveraged by, um, by users. But mm -hmm. all said, um, you know, if, if the building works for whatever reason not to be absorbed from manufacturing use, we do think that there's, there's times where it may make sense to, uh, you know, lease it to a more distribution oriented user. Mm -hmm. At least it's a, it's a good fallback, uh, if you can't really, uh, lease a building for some reason. Um, so, uh, shifting to, back to Dallas, and I know you guys have opened an office, uh, a couple of years ago in Dallas, uh, and that, that's a bit of a different, uh, play. It's more focused on distribution. Uh, would you say that that is right? I mean, where do you see that opportunity with compared to Houston? Yeah, it is. They're, they're very different cities and the, um, the market is, has been interesting. You know, as we've dug in and learned the DFW kind of metroplex area, what we've seen is the freestanding buildings that in Houston are often, uh, manufacturing buildings. In Dallas, they're being used for the small bay distribution. So, Dallas was maybe about 10 years ahead of Houston in the development cycle in terms of building a lot of large bulk distribution buildings. So that's been going on in Dallas for a very long time. And there's a lot of those users and a lot of that space in Dallas. But what almost no one is, is building anymore is really well-located smaller bay buildings. And there's a lot of these freestanding buildings that are used by small distribution uses. Um, some of them may have a slight manufacturing component where perhaps they're receiving goods and then doing some slight modifications to it in one way or another and then shipping it out. Um, so it may not be just a true traditional distribution user and there may be a, a, a little bit of manufacturing component to it. 
But um, that's that's the majority of what we see there. It's different than Houston, where you see very heavy manufacturing with the overhead cranes, with the you know extremely high temperature of power, uh, and all of those things. Uh, in Dallas, it tends to be more distribution oriented. So you know it's just something we have to be aware of and make sure that we're looking for the right attributes that are demanded by the local market. And you know that's something our firm has been very intentional about is getting very involved in the you know the, the, the brokerage community and getting very involved in the market and understanding where the demand trends are so that we can make sure we guide our clients into product that um, that will be absorbed that will be functional and that um, there's no risk of obsolescence for mm -hmm. so you'd say that uh, Houston is more of a local though huge manufacturing market and Dallas is more of a regional distribution play that's absolutely right. And uh, when looking at Dallas, well, Dallas says I think they're the first in the nation in terms of amount of deliveries, probably somewhere in the mid-20 uh, million square feet uh, that are about to be delivered. Uh, but it, it sounds to me that uh, um, uh, the tune is different for Dallas in terms of probability of absorption for that bulk product, just because of what we've said. Uh, do you see that the same, and, uh, and if not, do you think there's a chance here for oversupply? You know, I, I think it's unknown. I think, um, you know, we're, we're all waiting to see. I mean, they've had an unprecedented amount of new inventory delivered, and so it's hard to look at historical data to say whether or not what they have be absorbed, because ultimately this has never been done before. Um, however, what we have seen so far is uh, requirements have surfaced that are absorbing most of it, and there really do it doesn't feel like there's an excessive amount of supply. I think if if in any category at all there will be excess supply, I think it's going to only be in the very large cross-stock buildings that are not well located. Um, you know what we've seen is because there has been so much pressure to develop. Developers have become um, much more aggressive about the sites that they're selecting, and in some cases, um, you know, not placing as much priority on quality of location as they probably should. And so, we believe that the the projects that you know suffer, if at all, will be those that uh, were less selective in, in site selection. But there will still be great demand for the well-located projects. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at the end of the day, uh, there's so much attention now uh, being uh, uh, diverted and focused uh, in the Houston, Dallas, and overall distribution market. Uh, I think uh, uh, COVID has done, has gave a lot of tailwind uh, to that uh, trend, and as e-commerce as e sales grew, then we also see uh, many more uh, 3PLs requirements, and those 3PL requirements. Uh, obviously need space and, and therefore you see much more demand uh, for distribution space. Uh, and that's basically what we're seeing in hearing. Uh, uh, I, did you encounter that as well, meaning more e-commerce users, more 3PLs, uh, users that are actually expanding uh, throughout COVID-19? Absolutely. I, you know, I think COVID has accelerated the online buying trend by more than a decade. Uh, and while many of... Um, Younger people were already, um, you know, primarily relying upon Amazon and, uh, you know, online clicking on their phone to have a box show up. Uh, I think 
the older generation has now overnight adapted uh, online buying as a result of COVID. And I think generations that otherwise would have continued to want to go and shop in a traditional store have now gotten comfortable having everything from their groceries delivered via Instacart to um, all products that they buy coming and showing up on a, on their doorstep via Amazon. So I think there's been a, a, a massive acceleration to the online buying trend. And um, that was something that wouldn't have happened without COVID. But now that it has happened, it's creating a massive demand for local warehouse space. So it's creating pain in the big box retail um, where, you know, these the, the big guys don't need as much um, store space as they used to because they're not getting people in there. But we believe that those people are still consuming those same products. They're just consuming it in a different manner. And now that products need to come from a local warehouse somewhere. Mm-hmm. When you say big box, big box, you mean retail and not the big boxes for industrial. That's right, big box retail, exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand. And it's not just from the uh, uh, demand and supply uh, fundamentals. It's also seen uh, in the capital markets. I mean, do you see uh, um, better or bigger allocation of institutional buyers uh, towards industrial? Are, are they more bullish on making uh, industrial distribution deals uh, because of COVID? I do believe that will be the, uh, the the long-term impact. I think through COVID, what we saw even across the product that we're involved with is industrial really performed much better than almost all the product types. Uh, you know, if you look at collections through the COVID downturn, where uh, you know, it suffered in retail extremely, uh, suffered in office slightly, uh, industrial collections were extremely strong. and uh, most industrial businesses continue to operate as business as usual. And I think, you know, the kind of the clear winners of the pandemic were uh, industrial and multifamily. Um, those are the two sectors that seem to perform the best. Mm-hmm. And I think, as you commonly see, when, you know, a sector is noticed as, as outperforming the others, you will see increased allocations over time from most major institutions. And, um, you know, I do think that that's likely to continue to drive pricing up and cap rates down over time. But what's been interesting is most of the major institutions are still frozen. Uh, there, there really isn't a lot of capital immediately pursuing, even industrial, only because so many of these large REITs, uh, you know, major institutional investment firms are, you know, based in New York where their offices haven't been able to open back up they are. Uh, on no travel mandates, and so they've basically frozen. And even though they they know that there's opportunity in the industrial sector, they're just not in a in a mode where they can actually um, get into gear to right now. So I think there's a narrow before those guys come off of the sideline, uh, where there continues to be opportunity for uh, more aggressive and entrepreneurial capital. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely uh, a good point. You know, uh, we're looking at statistics from Coastal at the entire U.S. industrial market. We see that 60% of the square footage, about 10 billion square feet out of 14 uh, billion square feet in the United States as, as the entire market, uh, is what we call urban distribution center. is below 200,000 square feet. So 60% of the entire market is last month, below 200,000 square feet. Many investors uh, think that uh, the fact that they would be interested in those infill locations, smaller uh, uh, properties, 
uh, below 200,000 square feet basically means that those properties are sometimes uh, maybe obsolete or outdated because their uh, clear height is 20 to 22 or maybe sometimes 18 uh, and it's not newly uh, built product. Uh, do you agree with that statement? Do you think it's still useful? I mean, where do you see that uh, going in the next few years? Well, I think we always have to look at each building on a case-by-case -case basis. And, you know, we do always have to adhere to fundamentals making sure that there's adequate truck port depth to get trucks in and out and that there's a reasonable clear height and that, you know, ultimately that the building can be functional. So there are instances where buildings may, you know, be obsolete just because they they were built so poorly. Uh, but I think for the most part, there are a lot of really buildings. And while they may not have the, uh, you know, the 32 to 38 foot clear height that new construction does, um, frankly, they don't need it for mile distribution where, um, you know, folks are rarely racking higher than, you know, three pallet stacks high. Uh, in last mile distribution, the product is coming and going um, so quickly that there really isn't um, the, the same requirements for clear height and there isn't the same volume of trucks that you'd have in, in major cross stock buildings. So I think a lot of these buildings still do have a very long functional life ahead of them. Um, and again, they're truly irreplaceable because when you look at what's happened around many of them, um, you know, land has risen to prices where uh, the highest and best use is multifamily or retail or something else other than industrial. And so there's basically no competition for these older buildings. And when users need within a certain um, number of miles from their core base of what they're trying to serve, it, their only option is older buildings. And mm -hmm. going to maybe sacrifice um, some of the attributes that they could get in new construction because of the reality that they can't get new construction in this area. Mm -hmm. So from a practical standpoint, you're saying there's it's irreplaceable. And if you find a spot to replace it, it's going to be in a much higher price uh, per foot because of construction prices. And, right. uh, pr and that's from a practical standpoint. But from an operational standpoint of tenants, uh, they don't really need on that 30,000 square foot building a 40 clear height. Why? Because it's an in and out operation. It could be the inventory could go out in that same day if they're uh, if they're uh, uh, you know reaching their customers in the same day or next day delivery. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, with technology and the way that many of these companies are using for their supply chain management, they've gotten very good about not hanging on to product for long. And uh, and and you're exactly right. The product is coming and coming into these buildings very quickly. And so it's just a different set of needs that the users have relative to your large, big bulk distribution guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. Um, well, Keith, I think we uh, we covered many uh, many things. Uh, Dallas, uh, Houston, overall economy, and um, it seems to me that uh, uh, Texas would, uh, uh, at least for the uh, uh, near term, that we can think about would stay attractive in terms of uh, distribution, manufacturing. I think as we talked about, is yet to be seen. Well, that would go, but there are also a few opportunities ahead uh, that maybe that uh, uh, hole would backfill pretty fast. Uh, so, you know, it was very interesting uh, uh, to hear your points and feedback, and I appreciate your time, and I'm sure our listeners uh, have enjoyed it. Well, thank, so thank you. Thank you we, for joining us. Yeah, thank you. We greatly value our partnership with Fairpoint. We've worked with you guys for almost five years now, and have um, really been impressed with your team as you continue to grow and, and grow in your presence, and we look forward to much success together in the future.
Thank you. We will talk soon. All right. Thank you. Bye. -bye.